Welcome to Investor Insights, the wealth management podcast where we address investor needs, help you enhance your financial situation, and explore all parts of a person's financial life. And now, the host of Investor Insights, Mike Williams. Hey there, and welcome back. It's Mike Williams. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. What we're going to cover today is something we call wrong measuring sticks. You know, like most of these podcasts, the point to all of them is to kind of give you a Maybe a different perspective from what we're told by the, quote, experts and the menagerie of video and audio onslaught we get from the media every day. Uh, It's very simple, as we've learned by now, I hope, that uh, you can take a piece of data and make it mean lots of different things. But since the public is ultimately very poor at turning that data into real wealth over time, Uh, Our business is about helping people understand very succinctly a perspective that does more often lead to the right direction. So we've heard uh, often that the only thing left, I mean, we keep hearing that there's only one or two things left that are, quote, really holding up the stock market. You went for years being told while the market doubled that the only reason it was doubling is because of QE. You remember quantitative easing. There was one, two, and three. And we went on for years, and then we talked for a year and a half about how it would end, and then we talked about tapering, and we had taper tantrums. And I mean, it just went on and on and on. Well, QE's been over for a while. And what's interesting here is the new thing that's being told, we're being told, is the only thing holding up the stock market is stock buybacks. Uh, I have some good news. Uh, While we've been told for months that the corporate stock buyback program is doing two things, i.e. only thing left holding the market and B, causing tremendous debt to be due, that's really not the case. So as a percentage of total profits, now, now there's two perspectives of looking at this. First of all, the process of stock buybacks is a fundamental way corporate structures get money back to shareholders. You shrink the number of shares, it increases the amount of earnings left over per share, but it also takes corporate cash and returns it to its rightful owners, and that is the shareholders. Uh, that uh, That's a very simplistic view, but the point is, is there's a couple ways to check to see what buybacks are. There's a percentage of corporate profits, and there's a percentage of liquid assets. Now, here's the interesting part about it. In January of 2000, buybacks as a percent of corporate profits were 8.1%. In other words, 8.1% of all corporate profits went to stock buybacks. That was 16 years ago, Okay, when the stock market was lower than we are now. Now, my point to that is today's corporate buybacks as a percent of corporate profits are now 9.7%. In other words, they are 1.5 to 1.6% higher than they were 16 years ago. 
My question, of course, is 16 years ago, we were in the middle of the uh, beginning stages of the tech bubble. But I don't remember anybody telling us then that the only thing holding up the stock market was stock buybacks. And yet we are a mere one and a half to 1.6% higher as a percent of, by the way, as a percent of a much larger, vastly expanded corporate profit base versus 16 years ago. So I think the law of large numbers is tricking us or tricking many. But another way to look at this is a as a percentage of liquid assets. The liquid asset perspective is the following. Again, back in January of 2000, as the new century dawned, the percent of liquid assets going towards buybacks in the corporate world was 4.75%. 4.75%. Today, it's 6.5%. So again, it's about one point, call it one point eight percent higher, uh, as a uh, on a by the way vastly larger asset base. Uh, again, suggesting that the big number that we see in print and the vast sounding expanse of corporate buybacks makes one think without really thinking that wow maybe these uh, maybe these scare tactics are real this time maybe maybe it really is holding up the stock market uh, no it's not blame the law of large numbers okay so my real question here that we want to consider is here we are in the year 2016 where we're talking about apps and downloads and smartphones and technologies and cloud and electronic cars and no driver cars and robotics uh, you know how does that compare to what we talked about say 30 years ago 40 years ago maybe 50 years ago imagine sitting down in the early 80s and telling your friend about your new smartphone uh, think of that for a second think of Sitting down at a coffee shop, by the way, there was no Starbucks, so imagine sitting at your local Denny's, uh, grabbing some eggs, bacon, and a coffee at a booth, and pulling out your iPhone and saying, hey, Bob, look what I got this weekend. Imagine that for a second. Okay, Now, bizarre, right? Imagine doing it, say, in the 1970s. <laughs> Back in the hippie days, what if you took out your iPhone along with your joint and said, man, you're not going to believe what I picked up over the weekend. Just, I'm not trying to be funny here, but my point is, is the way we measure things. Believe it or not, we are measuring today's economy using the very same statistics and processes of measuring we call measuring sticks. Okay, for purposes of this episode, we use the same measuring sticks today as we did 50 years ago. Now, I pause for a second on purpose. Let that sink in and then ask yourself this. Do you really think we're getting a true measurement of what today's economy is? 
or are we just getting it kind of squashed into yesterday's perspective of today's economy? Maybe that's what we're doing. And if we are, by the way, as investors, we're looking in the rearview mirror. The scary part about that perspective is you don't know what the future is. But what you do know is it typically surprises us. That's because it's funny. As, as Yogi Berra said once, predictions are tough, especially when it's about the future. I, I paraphrase that a little. But here's my point, seriously. Ask yourself how much of today's economy, production processes, efficiencies, industry, output, products, services, how many uh, of those things are we using the same tools to measure that we used in the 50s and 60s? Now, to give you a sense of what that would be like and, and how it should impact you, and can't maybe maybe broaden your perspective is this. Imagine you walked into, a, let, let's say you were told that there might be a problem in your brain, okay, and you might have a tumor. Uh, you might not, but you might. And imagine being sent to a brain specialist who does nothing but measure the prospects of do you have a brain tumor? And you walk into this nice, fancy office, and it looks wonderful, feels wonderful, it's quiet, you're, you're getting along with the doctor. He lays you down on the table, and he brings in this machine that he's going to attach to your brain to measure it, and you find it was made in the 60s. And it's dusty, and it's old, and it's that old gray plastic, and you say to yourself, uh, well... Yes, that's okay. Really? Really? Do you think it would be okay? Would you be comfortable with the output? Would, would you be okay if a machine made in the 50s was telling you today whether you had a brain tumor or not? And your life might depend on it. Would you believe that little ticker tape thing that pops out at the end of the thing and he just pulls it out and rips off the page and goes, ah, well, uh, yeah. You know, Bob, you look pretty safe. It, it doesn't show anything here. Would you believe it? Would you be comfortable with it? If not, as I suspect the answer is, then why in the world would, be, would he be so quick to buy into all the garbage spit out about our economy from 50 and 60 years ago processes? While you're thinking about that, think about this. We've been told for years this is the worst recovery ever, okay? It's the most tepid, uh, smallest, shortest, shallowest, whatever you want to call it. It's the worst. But here's the thing. Slow for longer is not bad. We're being inundated by lackluster economic reports, okay? If things are so terrible, guys, why is it we have a record low in unemployment claims? Why are jobs doing well? Further, under the thing of the law of large numbers, I want you to think about this. When I started in 1982, a 4% GDP growth, my God, if we had a 4% GDP growth today, we'd fall off our chair, right? But in 1982, we did, okay? For the 80s, we had four, excuse me, 4% readings, right? Now, but here's the key. 
it was on a $6 trillion economy. So a 4% growth rate, which was staggering, was about $240 billion new dollars of economic output and growth. Okay, But today, a 2% GDP is paltry, insignificant, lackluster, and the worst recovery we've ever seen, except it's $360 billion of new economic output. Or, by the way, 50% more real economic dollar output than that 4% reading back in the 80s. The fuss? Well, once again, it's the law of large numbers. But again, remember, guys, do we really have a problem that we think we do? Or are we just buying into measurements from decades ago? I get the idea that we threw all the money at the problem and have nothing to show for it. I get that only on the surface, though, because you can find where the money went, okay? It didn't just vanish. It didn't go to money heaven. The mantra is from those who've missed the 10,000-point rally since 2009. For the rest of us, maybe a, a better view is required, maybe better measuring sticks. All that money did two things, okay? A, it slowly brought back confidence into a nearly frozen financial system, allowing some trust to seep back in the system as well. Think of being on the operating table with IVs on a slow drip and a machine keeping your heart beating. Are you really going to pretend that you're not alive when you recover just because something else helped you come back? Seriously? The other thing all that money did from QE is it ended up in the bank. We've talked about this before in previous podcasts. I think it's sort of telling that uh, in the middle of the crisis in 08 and 09, U.S. bank savings deposits were $4 trillion. Okay? $4 trillion. By the way, that was nearly three times as much as was present at the end of the tech bubble collapse when everybody hated stocks again. Okay? So in 0809, when they really hated stocks, there was four trillion dollars sitting, earning nothing, because rates were zero, in bank accounts. Okay? Now, oddly enough, today those very same bank accounts have 8.2 trillion dollars in them. Or, for quick math, four trillion more dollars than the 2009 levels. Now, oddly enough, that number, you might be surprised, has an uncanny resemblance to the amount of money, quote, thrown at the system via QE programs. There was about four trillion dollars in QE programs. Don't you find it odd that about $4 trillion more dollars ended up in bank accounts? Mind you, add that to the fiscal garbage that's been added to our income taxes and regulations and business hurdles by an organization in the current D.C. power squadron that doesn't like business, that believes more in a social structure, and giving stuff away. Mind you, I'm not trying to be political. I'm just dealing with the numbers. When you add all this stuff up, 
the idea of a paltry recovery is not because of all the things we've been told it is. The market's not staying up because of buybacks. The market is staying up because we're about to explode in earnings. The market is staying up because the future is brighter than we think. The market is up and not falling apart because the future is better than having $8 trillion sitting in the bank account earning nothing. No investment, no growth, no productivity, no new businesses, no risk on the future. Yet, we got an $18 trillion economy in our midst because we took risk. Someone decided the future was worth investing in. And you know what? It paid off in 18 trillion ways. So instead of understanding this paltry recovery as a fault of something we did, it's really a fault of something we didn't do. We stopped doing what made us big. We stopped doing what made us successful. We started being afraid of everything that moved. How do you know that? Look at all the money in the bank. Look at all the money that won't go anywhere, that chooses to earn zero or less. Seven trillion more dollars in global assets have been put into negative rate bonds, meaning seven trillion went out and you are guaranteed to get less than seven trillion back. And that was a choice. It wasn't like governments confiscated that money. People ran, they got in line to give money only to get it back at a lesser rate. Now that's what I call deep-seated fear about the future. Okay? Here's the tough trade. Here's the tough, tough deal. And by the way, anybody who's built wealth will tell you they did most of it by taking the tough trade. So what's the tough? As tough as this is to swallow, much like it was in the late 70s and early 80s, explosive growth is smoldering under our surface. Industry is shifting. Believe it or not, energy was just the first signal of the power shift. Generation Y is slowly taking the reins and will surprise most as their synergies begin to mix with many corporate industries. We'll cover more later, but until then, imagine for a moment that you were investing back at the last demographic shift of this magnitude, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when the baby boom was taking over. Imagine further that you became equally concerned then with all the near-term economic mess that was present at the time. You think it's bad today? Man, it was terrible in the 70s. Lastly, imagine for a second how foolish it would appear today if you had thought the following idea then. Quote, I am not going to invest at Dow 1200 because it has never been this high before and the future looks dark. Unquote. Yes, in the end, I agree. It is uncomfortable. Reading all the news, seeing all the terrible indicators. It is tough watching all that data flash in milliseconds across the screens. It's tough to mentally take all that in and not say, gosh, I don't know, maybe it is tough this time. Look, it's always been like that. 
History tells us this is how major shifts are hidden from the naked eye of the masses. Remember, markets are priced on tomorrow, which is why humans tend to have difficulty with them. We try to make them think in our minds that it's about yesterday. But history tells us the future only becomes clear later, much later, at surprisingly higher stock prices. So think about that and pray for a summer swoon. Until we see you on the next broadcast, I hope these thoughts have been helpful. Thanks again for joining us. And until then, may your journey be grand and your legacy significant.